The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. talk about the dangers of a third world war that is not hyperbole this is the world we're in right now Four. when the economic rubber hits the road has britain got the political strength to maintain these sanctions Three. your mum and my mum would love this the government has advised children to go back to school if they feel well enough to do so Stinking up the national duvet. There's a felicitous phrase, honestly. <laughs> well, I had to top last week's cervix of doubt. <laughs> we have and welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, co-pilot, the scores are in and the result? The cost of living's gone up. Last Friday, average household fuel bills rose 54% as the new off-gem energy price cap announced back in February finally kicked in. Council tax was also increased. National Insurance Contributions, or NICs, for workers have risen 1.25 percentage points to 13.25%. The government says taxes are rising to help tackle the NHS backlog, while stressing those on lower incomes will pay less. But is that really true? To some, this NIC rise seems ill-timed and even cynical. A tax increase now, so taxes can be cut with much fanfare just before an election. Could that be true? It's an economic heavy news agenda, co-pilot, with the Russia-Ukraine conflict also feeding into our cost-of-living squeeze. But what caught my eye as we launched for this, our 95th Planet Normal liftoff, was your latest Telegraph offering. No, not the article about you, quotes, popping your poo in the post, which almost <laughs> put me off my cornflakes. But your latest thoughts on COVID for the work shy, which you say is the gift that keeps on giving. Well, co-pilot, I think we know that things in the UK are getting back to normal because the trains are cancelled, aren't they? So business as usual in the UK. No, sorry, Gov. The train's got COVID. That won't be leaving the station. And just as we are recording breaking news, huge numbers of BA, EasyJet flights cancelled. Lots of people, lots of families have not been abroad for two years now, all looking forward to a lovely Easter holiday, hopes dashed because a few people have tested positive for COVID. I don't want to start on a negative note, Halligan, but what a bloody shower. I mean, look, this is all supposed to be behind us now. (laughs) That's like Tony Blair. I don't deal in cliches, but I feel the hand of history on my shoulder. (laughs) I don't want to be negative, but what a bloody shower. (laughs) No doubt you'll have some fancy pants economics term for it. But we got an email from a listener yesterday who works in the airline industry who said that on a flight, five of the crew had tested positive for COVID. Not one of them was ill and they cancelled the flight. So this is where we are now absolutely living in a parallel universe. The majority of people have no choice. They have to get on, have to do their jobs. The public sector, on the other hand, carries on in a parallel universe. And as I said in my column this week, COVID, the excuse that goes on giving. And in addition, co-pilot, if you think the situation isn't bad enough, we have nine new official symptoms of COVID-19 have just been added to the NHS website. Nine new official symptoms. Ingrown toe now? COVID. <laughs> 
thick head after a few beers? COVID. <laughs> Gammy knee? COVID. <laughs> no symptoms at all? COVID. So we've got this nine new symptoms, many of which sound remarkably like what we used to call a cold when we were children. Basically an open invitation to call in sick. And we've got the NHS seriously suggesting that people with a headache should stay home and avoid contact. The reason I wrote this, Liam, was just because COVID-related absences are causing chaos, not just in airlines, which we're seeing on the news, but in essential services like schools and hospitals. And it's incredibly serious. We just had, actually, one of the things that we're so lucky with on Planet Normal is we have listeners in all walks of life who can give us hot off the presses information. So this is just in, Liam, from a very senior NHS surgeon. I was told yesterday from a good source that by testing positive but not showing any signs of COVID pneumonia, a 60-year-old patient has been delayed from having critical heart surgery. His risk of death from surgical intervention has just risen to 90% from an estimated 30% directly because of the delay in surgical intervention at one of this country's finest and is being diagnosed with that nebulous disease, now killing patients through unnecessary fear. Why are our doctors and their royal colleges silent? I cannot believe that so many allegedly intelligent people are unable to make a sound judgment on the risk-benefit ratio. They cancelled a vital heart operation because this person with no symptoms of COVID tested positive for COVID. It's mad when you think all the people that will have been in that room ready to do the surgery, mm. all the millions of pounds spent on the hospital, the equipment, the vital slot that was taken. These things take weeks and months to plan. The person that couldn't have their operation. Look, no one's saying that COVID hasn't been nasty for some people, particularly elderly. No one's saying it hasn't killed people, previous variants. But the evidence, 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 which we always look at on Planet Normal, mm. shows that the number of people in ICUs, in serious conditions in hospital with COVID, is now very, very low indeed. We know that for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, this new variant is like a cold and increasingly medics, though some of them are scared to do so, are speaking out and saying that. Up in Manchester, Britain's second city under most definitions, the airport has been in chaos for a month. So much so that the person who runs the airport, an excellent woman who has a brilliant reputation within the aerospace industry, been running Manchester Airport. She's just resigned. Mm. She's been working for Manchester Airport Group, which also runs Stansted and East Midlands for eight years. And it's not only that they can't recruit staff, it's more that their rosters are bare because staff who are trained and to get airside, you need clearance. Obviously, you need special security related checks, rightly so. Once you can get airside, i.e. near the planes, near safety critical equipment and so on. So that takes time. It's hard just to bring new people in. And so people are turning up at Manchester Airport and missing their flights because they can't be processed because so many people are, to put not too fine a point on it, stinking up the national duvet at home on another Netflix binge. We're not saying this isn't a serious disease There's for some people. That's a felicitous phrase, honestly. <laughs> Well, I had to top last week's <laughs> cervix of doubt. <laughs> cervix of doubt. Yeah, that's gone into the 
Planet Normal lexicon. When the Planet Normal t-shirts are made and it's only a matter of time, it'll be there. <laughs> Orthogonal to the orthodoxy, triangle toast eaters from Brian the Fisherman mm. and the cervix of doubt. <laughs> and stinking up the duvet as well. The national duvet. But, but, but I think that there is these high level of absences and I do think that anger at the unfairness is growing. There was one Amazon driver who said, fortunately, I'm self-employed, so I'm immune to COVID. So there is this great divide, Liam, between those in protected occupations. And the thing that really got me this week, so we had, just as we were recording last week, the universal free COVID testing for the public was scrapped in England. And surprise, surprise, Halligan, huge drop in cases. On Monday this week, cases were down 33% from a week ago. And I think that's proving that people are not that bothered about testing if they actually have to pay for a test. So that was all going according to plan for the government. And I was horrified, really, to discover that providing free tests was costing taxpayers two billion pounds a month. I mean, that obviously includes the admin and the whole marketing of it. And as you're about to tell us with the cost of living crisis, Liam, we cannot afford that. We just can't. That's 24 billion quid a year for people to test positive with when they haven't got any symptoms. So we are in a kind of farcical territory. Now, there's been a huge uproar from Labour MPs, from the trade unions. We've talked a lot about the shameless misuse of the pandemic to hold the government to ransom. And particularly this week, I've been zooming in on the teachers. We're hearing a lot about teachers. I'm not talking, Liam, about people who are really ill. I had COVID about a month ago, had about two days in bed feeling really poorly. But we're now talking about staff, teachers, still basically calling into the head on the morning saying, I'm still testing positive on day eight. They're not ill. You're not ill. There are children in a month's time going to be taking GCSEs. I know your son is among them. They need teachers. He's hoping for COVID. That's all I can say. That's the basis of his revision (laughs) plan at this point. Mass pandemic. I know. Notice all the boys saying, please, sir, can you cancel the exams? And all the girls are going into swooning fits because they've got 900 revision cards and they're not going to be required to do it. But so, so this week we've seen these education unions sending an open letter to the education secretary, Nadim Zahawi. In the face of this extensive and ongoing disruption, they say, the decision to remove free access to symptomatic and asymptomatic testing for pupils and staff feels reckless in the extreme. It's the testing staff and the pupils that's causing the disruption of which they complain. Now, the government has, uh, I think Nadim Zahawi is quite a tough cookie, actually, and they've slightly started to stand up to the union, certainly better than they were doing under the the great reign of Sir Gavin Williamson, as I suppose we must call him. <laughs> Through gritted teeth. <laughs> Sir Gavin Williamson. He is the knight of your realm, my God. Sir Basil Brush, (laughs) Sir Frank Spencer. Oh, God. But anyway, the government has advised children. You'll love this. Your your mum and my mum would love this. The government has advised children to go back to school if they feel well enough to do so. Can you imagine our mothers? 
Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Get out of the house. Of course you can, Malcolm. Oh, Mum, I can't go to school with a blocked-up nose. We need the return of Malcolm's mum from that Vic Sinex nasal spray <laughs> advert. Would your mum? My mum would never let me have a day off. <laughs> what I mean, are you on? You don't feel like going to school. You get you get one of my digits up your backside and off you go. <laughs> exactly. You've still got Crikey. two legs. Anyway, oh, yeah, here's your lunch money. Off you go. So we've had millions of children. This, is, this isn't funny, really. Millions of children have missed weeks, even months of school over the last two years when they weren't remotely ill, all right? And this week, you know, I don't like taking credit for any sort of gift of prophecy, but there was a (laughs) devastating Ofsted report this week which confirmed what people like us have been banging on about. A generation of babies and toddlers is struggling to crawl and communicate. Toddlers who've spent a big percentage of every day gazing at masked faces don't know how to form words because guess what? You have to look at your lips of your mum and dad to form words. And some of them, Liam, even sat in front of the TV for so long that some little ones are even speaking with the American accent. Oh, my God. Sacrilege. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that facing this unprecedented real educational catastrophe and we have the teaching unions if they had any sense of duty or moral responsibility towards the children they would be getting as many members into the classroom as possible but they want to return to covid testing so that teachers with a blocked nose can have yet more time at home i really feel just i think they're beneath contempt quite frankly And of course, we know from our Planet Normal Inbox, there are many, 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 many teachers out there who don't agree with the stance of their teaching unions. No, they don't. They feel railroaded into joining the union because of staff room politics. They feel scared to speak out when the unions do things that they disagree with. A couple of things. You talked about a 24 billion quid bill for testing. Alison, that's equivalent to 4p on the basic rate of income tax. Oh, God. That's how much £24 billion spending costs, 4p on the basic rate of income tax. So in a single year, the basic rate of income tax could be 16p in the pound rather than 20 pence in the pound where it currently is. Imagine the boon, the boost that would give to the household finances of many, many struggling families. And I agree with you about Nadim Zahawi. One thing that rang in my ears when we listened to the excellent Mark Woolhouse on last week's Planet Normal, he was our stairway, of course, the Distinguished Professor of Epidemiology from University of Edinburgh, member of SAGE and all the fancy pants government groups, somebody who's written a really incredible book, The Year the World Went Mad, I certainly hope he's part of the public inquiry into COVID when it comes. But I remarked and he commented positively about Nadim Zahawi, who was vaccines minister, now his education secretary, saying that he thinks we shouldn't have closed schools. And that's a pretty punchy thing to say, given how petrified of the teaching union so many ministers are. And guess what? I'm just looking at the Conservative Home Ratings. This is a, a very influential website that is followed closely by conservative activists and journalists. Who's top of the conservative home ratings? Well, obviously, because it's a time of war, it's Ben Wallace, the defence secretary. Yeah. Who's number two on a 66% plus positive rating? It's Nadim Zahawi. Oh, wow. Ahead of Liz Truss, ahead of Sajid Javid. Rishi Sunak is now... Three off the bottom. Rishi has slithered down in his 325 quid trainers, hasn't he? He, Bless he him. is, as we say on Planet Normal, no longer flavour of the month. 
But I agree with you. I think there is a sort of surliness creeping into the UK. There is a sense of, oh, if she can take a day off, then I can take a day off, etc., etc. It's not just a public sector thing. I think it is spreading to the private sector. Look at Manchester Airport. That's not a public sector company in the main. No, but Liam, those are things where within airlines, within certain private enterprises, we've had, again, we've had lots of emails from listeners pointing out that some of this testing is still compulsory, even though that the government has said it's all over, guys, you've had your fun, we're not testing anymore. Within certain corporations, they're insisting on staff testing. So we've had listeners saying, actually, I want to go in, but I've been told, you know, I can't go in because someone's tested positive. So I think that it's harder to shift these things than we might think. But coming to this drastic cost of living event this week, something that caught my eye was that energy bills in France have gone up 4% and energy bills in in a town near you have gone up 54%. Now, the French pursued the nuclear power option, while as far as I can remember, little Ed Miliband uh, decided to have windmills instead of nuclear. Am I remembering that right? You are. The French famously have 70% of their Electricity is generated by nuclear. This is a technology which Britain invented. We invented civilian nuclear power in the 50s. When I was born in the late 60s, Britain had more civilian nuclear power than the rest of the world put together. And yet we now rely on French companies like EDF, Finnish companies, Japanese companies, American companies, even Chinese companies, if some people had their way, to maintain and build our new nuclear energy. It's less than a fifth of our energy. I think on Thursday, when Planet Normal comes out, we are going to see the government's new energy security strategy paper, long delayed. It won't allow fracking to go ahead. Kwasi Kwarteng has announced a review of that, kicking it into the long grass for three months. But there will be a big emphasis on nuclear. But as you have rightly pointed out, Alison, just then, nuclear takes a huge amount of time to come on stream. Even these new Rolls-Royce, literally they're Rolls-Royce modular yeah. reactors that are much smaller, they are five years away minimum. But I noticed also in my trawling through to try and impress you, as I always do, trying to find little nuggets. Trying to impress me by writing columns about your poo. (laughs) I'm not even going to describe it. I'm trying to find out what's going on in my microbiome, actually. You're writing about little kind of poo hammocks coming out your backside. (laughs) My God. Anyway, carry on. I've sent it off to America where gas prices are around six times lower than they are in the UK and Europe. (laughs) Now, of course, in the US, they've been fracking like mad, haven't they? They never banned extracting natural shale gas. Do you think the consumer in this country, do you think people are aware of these glaring errors that have been made in choosing or managing to not achieve energy security and compounded personally, you know, we talked about this, didn't we, that the increase in the 1.25 percentage points increase in national insurance, which is going to hammer people who are already scared. I mean, thank God, Liam, thank God we are going into summer. Because if this was September, October, and we were facing these bills and people were going to need heating... It would be absolute turmoil. But I wonder whether there will be public reaction as they realise that we've been sold a pup with all these green renewables. About a third of our energy bills going towards green renewables, Liam. You mentioned the other day that the Germans have chosen to not impose that, even though they're known for being very green, aren't they? 
That's right. I think it's fairer. And a lot of cabinet ministers have told me privately they think it's fairer if we don't put the cost of transitioning to renewables on people's electricity bills and their gas bills because poorer people pay such a higher proportion of their total expenditure on those necessities like fuel. It would be better if it came out of general taxation like it does in other countries. I do think the government could freeze these renewable subsidies on our electricity bills for now. They make up about a quarter of our electricity bills. They could cut VAT on fuel bills, not least because you can do that now we've left the European Union. All this adds up, I think, Alison, to a cost of living squeeze, which I still don't believe the majority of our political and our media class have really understood. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. And so to our latest Planet Normal guest, who has climbed aboard the rocket of right thinking this week, the capsule of common sense. Well, Roland Oliphant is the Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent. Having reported from Moscow for many years, He spent much of his time in recent weeks in Ukraine, writing a series of immensely powerful reports for the paper. Roland's back in the UK for now, and we're delighted to welcome him aboard. Roland Oliphant, it's great to have you on the Planet Normal rocket. You're not only a distinguished foreign correspondent of many years standing, you've also been spending a lot of time in Ukraine since this conflict happened. What do you think the public in the West should be aware of that they're not aware of? In the media, we're up to our eyes in this stuff, but I can never really tell how much people are actually reading of what's going on or watching what's going on and so on. So that's my first departure point. And as a foreign correspondent, you're always worrying about that because you spend weeks and days and months up to your eyes in this. How many people actually kind of cast an eye of what you've done in terms of the sport? I think... To answer the question in Bruce's terms, I think they have to be aware that there is an epochal war going on, basically an existential war, to be honest, and that to talk about the dangers of a third world war, that is not hyperbole. This is the world we're in right now. For many years throughout my career, it's always been really easy for you know opinion columnists and, and journalists and so on to kind of reach for the, the GCSE history textbook and talk about Nazi Germany. That's, that's what we've always done, right? You know, Saddam was Hitler, this was Hitler, blah, blah, blah. This is a point, for the first time in my career, I think those comparisons are not, I, I just don't think it's hyperbole. It's an incredibly dangerous moment, including for this country. This is not a faraway country of what we, which we know little and so on. This is a really, really serious issue for this country as well. Liam and I both admired your reports from Ukraine. There have been some astonishing 
pieces from Mariupol. I read earlier today that Mariupol is looking like Stalingrad, which which rather backs up your point there that the comparisons with the Second World War are not exaggerated. In one piece, you wrote about Putin lifting tactics straight out of the Syrian playbook, make cities unlivable and force a capitulation. Is that what you think he's been doing? Or has this been a reaction to the fact that the Ukrainians didn't capitulate very quickly? I think it's a bit of both. In those very early chaotic days of the war, and we didn't really know what was going on, it was pretty clear the Russians, for whatever reason, and I imagine an absolutely catastrophic intelligence failure somewhere along the line. Um, they seemed to think that the Ukrainians would capitulate or that they, everything would go fine for them. And I think there was, at that moment, an, an effort to do things from the Russian point of view, decapitate the snake, take over, it'll all be done and dusted, we don't need to kill too many people. And that's why, so on the second or third day under the war, I was in Kharkiv, and the Russians did this really strange thing. They, they drove basically a, a bunch of light armoured vehicles, kind of the equivalent of Range Rovers or something into the city and they all got shot and killed. I couldn't make any head or tail of, of why they were doing it but it, if you had the assumption that everyone was going to run away and kind of acquiesce then you do that and I think we, we saw a definite shift after that failed after the first few days of the war to exactly those tactics which I mean we talk about the Syrian playbook but I think it's really kind of medieval siege warfare. It's not something that the Russians or the Syrians invented. It's this idea that if you're trying to take a population centre and you're trying to crush a population, the distinction between military targets and civilian infrastructure is, it's kind of academic. And if you want to be really, really brutal and immoral about it, there isn't much of a distinction because a hospital, for example, is what makes it possible for a city to continue functioning. Hospitals make soldiers better. People go there, they get patched up, they go back to fight. So hit the hospitals, hit the schools, hit the water supply crush, kill and destroy it. And that's certainly what's been going on in Mariupol. There is no question about that. Roland, you're a Moscow correspondent of long standing. You've been the Telegraph's Moscow correspondent, I think, since back in the early 2010s. You used to work at the Moscow Times, as I did back in the day. What do you think is going on in terms of public opinion in Russia? We both know that for many years... Putin was relatively popular. People put up with him because the economy was going pretty well. People were getting wealthier in the main. Where is Russian public opinion now, do you think? And to what extent could that impact Putin's next move? That's a really good question. And I think one of the problems is we don't really know the answer to that. Because I think we're in a place now where you cannot safely and honestly answer an opinion poll question about this war in Russia right now. If you got an anonymous phone call from a pollster saying, you know, just tell me, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, to what degree do you support the special military operation in Ukraine? You would be mad to say, I really don't think that's a good idea. I mean, people will do it, people will continue to do it. There's still the kind of Moscow liberal middle class, although many of them have fled. So we don't really know. The Ukrainians feel that Russian society is basically behind this that Putin couldn't do this without a large amount of acquiescence and a large amount of support. I can't tell. I know all of my Russian friends are appalled by what's going on. But then I'm sure you could turn around and say, well, your Russian friends are part of the central Moscow metropolitan elite with no contact with the great working class. I honestly don't know. What's really worrying to me is that in the run-up to this war, one of the reasons I was sceptical about it happening, one of the reasons everyone who worked in Russia was sceptical about it happening was because there was no proper preparation of the ground at home. So in 2014, when the first invasion happened, there was you know all this rhetoric about 
Ukrainian Nazis and this and, and, and people in Crimea. When the annexation happened in Crimea, by the time the Russian troops showed up, people in Crimea and across Russia, they literally thought that SS divisions were rolling south from Kiev. That's how strong the propaganda had been. We just didn't see that kick in until almost the day the war started. And I thought, you can't do this. You can't start a war when you haven't sold it to the public already. And secondly, Kharkiv, Kiev, Mariupol, these are places where everybody in Russia has Auntie Masha or, you know, Cousin Dima mm. or, or your brother or your mm. uncle. Your, I just thought... No. Or years of summer holiday memories. All of that. All of that. I mean, I, I know lots of people who are mixed Ukrainian-Russian families and... I didn't think you could do this. I didn't think you could bomb the hell out of Kharkiv and have the Russian public live with it. But what's happened, what Ukrainians have said to me, is my village was flattened. I rang up my cousin. He used to come and visit us every year, and he moved to Moscow after his army service. Very common story. He just wouldn't believe me. He just said, oh, yeah, well, okay, maybe you're being bombed, but, yeah, who's doing the bombing? Did you see who was firing those shells? I bet it was those Ukrainian fascists. So the propaganda is really, really strong. And... I don't think we're at a point. I think there's an optimistic strain of thought which says the Russian public aren't going to wear this and they're not going to wear defeat and they're not going to wear the destruction of the country where their relatives live and they're not going to wear the economic degradation and they'll they'll all rise up and Putin will be overthrown. I think we're a long way from there. Roland, we've seen some amazing reporting from you and from your colleagues like Danielle Sheridan, Campbell McDermott writing The Telegraph today. Of course, the huge story of the week, it's almost intolerable really, is the sort of atrocities in Butcher and they're saying, you know, there are other cities and towns, aren't there, where these things have yet to been exposed. And we've seen almost unbelievable pictures of children and girls and so on who've been raped. Do you think the Russians thought that the crimes would never be seen because this was territory they expected to hold. And what do you think going forward do you see as the chances of bringing sort of war crimes type of prosecutions? I think the answer to the first part of the question is I'm not sure they cared Mm. because they were soldiers off the leash in wartime. And when you have a poorly led, brutalised army that's suffering defeat and is demoralized and is not being run properly by its officers, this kind of thing happens, especially, and it probably was encouraged. There's testimony from Butcher of rank-and-file soldiers asking their officer, right, well, what do we do with the prisoners? And the officer saying, well, do them in, but don't do it around here, take them down the road. And we know that because one of the survivors played dead, you know, took a bullet in his hip, was wounded, played dead. Yeah. You know, these, these stories that you get from the Holocaust, right, or from Srebrenica. So partly I, I think they don't even care about that. And to answer the war crimes question, that's not going to happen unless this Russian government collapses or is brought down. It is not going to happen. They're not going to be prosecuted in Russia. And neither this current Russian government or any element of it that might survive if Putin was to resign is going to bring those guys to justice. The, the only way there will be justice is a complete Russian defeat. And I can't see that happening, Roland. I don't know about you. (laughs) The Russians are just too tooled up in terms of their military capacity. The question I want to ask you is, what does an optimistic scenario look like? Where are, to use that awful phrase, the off-ramps for the Russians, for indeed the West? Now we're so entrenched and embroiled in this conflict. 
Do you see some kind of settlement along the lines of the Minsk protocols where the eastern regions have a high degree of autonomy? You'll know much better than me that under those 2014-15 agreements, which were never implemented, Donbass and Luhansk, Donetsk, those eastern parts of Ukraine would have stayed within Ukraine, but they would have been more autonomous, effectively vetoing NATO membership in all but name while keeping the nation of Ukraine intact. My fear is that we get to an outcome that's worse from the West point of view than Minsk was, but with tens of thousands dead. I mean, it really depends on how we judge what's a good outcome and what's not and and where your position is in terms of, is it worth losing more lives for something better or stopping it now? And really, that's only a question that the Russians and the Ukrainians can answer because they're obviously the warring sides. I think from the Ukrainian point of view, a repetition of Minsk and Minsk III would be defeat because that is what Russia was pushing for. The reason this war happened is essentially because Ukraine drew a line in the sand and said, we will not implement Minsk the way the Russians want us to because the Russian vision is the neutering, the euthanization of the entire Ukrainian national project. And for them, this is a war of independence. Optimistic, I think optimistic from the Ukrainian point of view and from the Western point of view is actually a complete Russian defeat, by which I don't mean Ukrainian tanks rolling onto Red Square. Although you can talk to some Ukrainian soldiers who say, yeah, I'll see you in Moscow, mate, we'll go in there. But I, I don't think they're going to pull that one off. But look, they've been defeated outside Kiev, which we didn't think was going to happen. They're pushing, they're making a big, big effort in Donbass. That's where the next huge battle is going to be. And they're going to try and lop off the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And Mariupol destroy the 30,000 odd Ukrainian troops concentrated there and probably use that to declare their victory and maybe secure that southern land corridor. I think that's not what Putin was looking for. I think Putin was looking for the complete destruction of the Ukrainian state. I think this was a war of naked aggression, a good old-fashioned Hitlerish, I want that country and it's going to be mine kind of war of aggression. All this stuff about, oh, NATO expansion, my security concerns, blah, blah, blah. Absolute nonsense. I don't buy it for a second. Just look at the actions. But I don't think Ukraine will accept that. I think the mood in Ukraine is to fight and to keep fighting. And I don't think the real talking is going to be done until one side has suffered a defeat, a decisive defeat. I don't know when that's going to happen or, or which side will suffer that. But at the moment, I think the peace talks are empty. Peace talks, I always think, are always empty until basically events on the battlefield have been decided by force of arms. War correspondents are famously hard-bitten. Obviously, you have to put up some kind of defences. Are there things that have shocked or distressed you in the past months that you perhaps were surprised to have experienced? I think just the fact that this war happened shocked me. As Liam was saying, like, I've got quite a deep relationship with Russia. I lived there for 10 years. I've got a lot of Russian friends. You I'm... speak the language beautifully as well. <laughs> I don't know about beautifully, but thank you very much. I love the place. I'm deeply affectionate for it. I'm, I'm bitterly, bitterly saddened about, about what's happening and about what Vladimir Putin is doing to the place, about how it switched from this kind of, it was authoritarian. Yes, there were things we didn't like about it, but kind of life kind of just switched straight into full totalitarian. I don't think fascism is too strong. Again, you know, when I was on the Moscow Times, We'd print these kind of populist article opinion pieces by academics saying, well, if you look at Weimar Germany and, and, and you look at Vladimir Putin, I think you can see the same pattern. He's basically a fascist. And you think, well, what are you talking about? This is just hyperbole. It's nonsense. But now that's horrible. And the same for Ukraine. I've spent a lot of time there. I've got a lot of great friends there. 
and they couldn't believe this was going to happen. I couldn't believe it was going to happen. I couldn't believe that Russian jets would be bombing Kiev and Kharkiv. It was just absolutely mad. The fact it's happened is still something I can't get my head around. To answer your question, I think that's the thing that's been most shocking. I mean, what happens to bodies, what artillery does to the human body, that happens all over the place. And sadly, you do kind of become, is accustomed to the word, to that kind of thing. But there's a deeply personal element for me in this war. Well, Roland Oliphant, you are a distinguished Telegraph foreign correspondent. We're delighted to have you aboard the rocket of right thinking, albeit under such difficult circumstances. And we're most, most grateful for your time. And when you do go back, look after yourself. Thank you very much. Great to hear him, Liam. We've all often talked about how much strength and depth we have at the Telegraph. And, and, and to think that Roland only a, a few days ago was in the heart of that beast he described to us so, so effectively. Something that's been cropping up this week, obviously very strongly related to Ukraine, and, and that's your special area, is I saw that the ruble has recovered almost all of its lost ground against the euro. Our very distinguished writer, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, wrote a very passionate piece about the failure, the sanctions not working, Germany still buying oil and gas from Russia, and effectively a sponsor of mass murder. Where do you think we are with the Europe and sanctions now against Russia? Well, I should say, I think Ambrose Evans Pritchard is the best newspaper columnist in Britain when it comes to economics, geopolitics, the areas in between them. He's a huge asset to the Telegraph. In this case, I'd slightly take issue with him. And one of my favourite things about coming into the Telegraph is seeing Ambrose and us having these chats that we do. Yes, we are back to sort of around 80 rubles to the dollar, but it's a very different 80 rubles to the dollar to where it was beforehand because... The Russian central bank has basically got capital controls in place. It's stopping money leaving the country. It's insisting that a lot of its export customers pay in rubles for those oil and gas exports, which means they've got to buy rubles, which supports the value of the ruble. So it's a very shaky 80 rubles to the dollar. It's a quite cosmetic 80 rubles to the dollar. It's an 80 rubles to the dollar when interest rates are up high in double digits, 15, 20%. And of course, higher interest rates push up currencies artificially. So I think Western sanctions, there is clamour for tighter, harder, firmer, longer, if you like. But I am concerned about how long, and this may sound rather uncomfortable to say this, but I'm sceptical about how long the West can maintain these sanctions at this intensity Given what's happening to fertilizer prices, Russia and Belarus are the huge exporters in our part of the world of potash, which is used for fertilizer. I'm worried about a kind of doom loop of food prices. <laughs> and I talked to lots of farmers in the east of England where I live, and I talked to lots of farmers on my GB News show in recent weeks since this war. Fertilizer prices are 800, 1,000 pounds a metric tonne. They were 150, 200 pounds this time last year. You don't put more fertiliser on, you skimp on it, you don't get the yield, you're not planting as much. We're not planting in Ukraine because of the war. 
We're not planting much in Russia because of the export restrictions, because of the shipping bans. What will happen is the price of food will continue to rise, Alison, and the rich countries like ours will buy up the food at whatever cost. Mm. And a lot of developing countries, which are big food importers, will suffer big time. Never forget that the Arab Spring was caused by rising food prices. The geopolitical implications of these sanctions are absolutely enormous. And of course, what's under our noses is the cost of living squeeze, which Mm. is now extremely serious with the price of beer going up, the price of milk going up because dairy farmers can't afford the feedstock for their cattle and the fuel to transport their product, etc., etc., etc. So, Yes, I am amazed at how coherent the West's response has been in terms of sanctions. We can quibble about the EU isn't really banning imports of energy from Russia and the UK isn't really, but they are restricting in general Russian exports onto global markets. That is having a massive impact. We are sanctioning the Russian Central Bank, which is an astonishing thing to do. That didn't happen ever, even in Soviet times. Why is it astonishing? Why? Explain to me, what does that do? What it does, you're basically saying the Russians own hundreds of billions of pounds of dollars, right? And if you want to use those to defend your currency, yeah, so you you, you buy rubles using your dollars to prop up the value of the ruble. The Russian central bank owns these dollars. They need access to the American-dominated, driven swift banking system to use those dollars on international capital markets and foreign exchange markets. And the Americans are saying no. So the Russians are effectively thinking the Americans have stolen their dollars. Right. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, the Americans say we haven't stolen them. We're just not letting you use them. (laughs) That, That didn't even happen during the Cold War. And so that is a very serious thing to do. And the West will say we're justified in doing it because of Putin's aggression, which was so powerfully remarked upon there by our colleague Roland Oliphant. But this is a step we haven't taken before. And also, there is a sense to me, and I think it's starting to seep out into the commentary now, that the Americans are far more able to withstand sanctions on Russia than we are here in Europe, because we are much more dependent on Russian energy, on Russian Mm. soft commodities, wheat, grain, and so on. The Americans, you know, they grow a lot of that stuff themselves. They're right up there among the biggest suppliers in the world. Their wholesale gas prices are much cheaper than ours because they've been fracking for years. They have their own massive oil and gas production industry, whereas most of Western Europe doesn't. So for all these reasons, I do think there will start to be questions about how long these sanctions can be maintained, whatever the British public feels in terms of affinity, affection for, support for Ukrainian people who are obviously being absolutely hammered by this aggressive action from Moscow. I agree. There were two types of moral tug this week that I felt myself was watching President Zelensky giving terrific performance by Zoom to the UN Security Council, calling on its members to kick out Russia 
if they can't kick them out, then they should dissolve the council, he said, because they are letting Russia sow death in Ukraine. So it was that very, very powerful moral argument. And then I was talking to a young friend. Her family are struggling. Both the parents are self-employed. They've got three tiny children. They're still trying to regroup their finances after they had to take two lots of 10 days off for COVID leave because the kids were not able to go to school. So there are families like that, Liam. And Amy was saying to me, you know, obviously we feel very sorry for the Ukrainians, but we're really scared if we don't take Russian oil and gas, you know, how high could our bills go and would we be able to pay them? And I thought that very nicely summed up. There are huge contending moral factors on both sides, aren't there? I think there are. And I feel rather reluctant to even outline the economic arguments because people will accuse me of being unpatriotic, if you like, for doing so. But it's my job. I'm an economic analyst above all. And ordinary British households are really feeling this squeeze. And they will be questioning the wisdom of sanctions, which, yes, they harm Russia, but the Russians are really good at circling the wagons. They've shown that throughout the years. But they are harming our own people What's going to happen if these sanctions are still on in the autumn as the weather starts to get colder and that off-gem energy price cap goes up again massively, which it almost certainly will, given that it's based on wholesale energy prices in the preceding months, which are currently very, very high. You will start to get people questioning why we are continuing with these sanctions. Why aren't we leaving it to two sovereign countries to resolve this among themselves. And I'm aware that even saying that will be incendiary to some people. But that's where I see this situation going. If you look at the economic logic of where we currently are, look how this is upending politics already, the cost of living crisis. And it's only really just begun. Mm. Those tax rises have only just happened. Those fuel bill rises that weren't going to happen anyway, Mm. the fuel bill rises have only just begun. And the 54% increase in fuel bills on average, which I referred to at the top of the show, Alison, that 54% increase decision predates the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It was decided in February. And Putin invaded on February the 24th after that price cap decision was made. So there's worse to come. I'm afraid there is. And it doesn't give me any pleasure to say it, but it is my job. This is my concern that when the economic rubber hits the road, has Britain got the political strength to maintain these sanctions? We know we're not going to go there militarily. But will we ultimately go there economically either? Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your fantastic messages coming. We love reading them. And as Copilot will often point out, I often draw on them heavily for my own work. Well worth pinching. It's shameless. It's just shameless. Not shameless. Properly making use of the material that the lovely listeners send us. We've had, understandably, had a lot of reaction this week, Liam, about the people swinging the lead with the COVID excuses. This is from Alex talking about the DVLA in my own part of Wales. 
Alex says, it's one thing having a sizable proportion of Swansea being paid to laze about at home watching Netflix and stuffing themselves with junk food at our expense. It's quite another when after five days of negative lateral flow tests and with no symptoms whatsoever, I am denied potentially life-saving cancer treatment because one PCR test was allegedly positive. So our beloved NHS is now making up a whole raft of new symptoms and using them to shirk their responsibilities. Do they teach this stuff in schools? Oh, sorry, no. The bolshy lefty workshy teaching profession can't be bothered to teach our children either. And this is from Helena. Amongst the NHS managers I work with, not one has any intention of ever returning to work in the office. The NHS also views the reasons for any absence as confidential, so there is no incentive for battling through a cold, COVID at home, and no shame in absenteeism. Colleagues will simply be told that Sarah is on leave rather than Sarah is off sick. Here's a more light-hearted one. It's from Jill. It's an email with the subject heading, Will the real Alison Pearson please stand up? (laughs) Dear co-pilots, like many of your listeners, my weekly ride on the rocket of normality has helped keep me sane over these past two years. I particularly enjoyed the latest chat with Professor Mark Woolhouse. I bought his book, The Year the World Went Mad, as soon as it came out, and it was great to hear him talking about his experiences. However... There may be, says Jill, an unexpected side effect from regular travel on the rocket. I was chatting with my partner and he suddenly turned to me and said, You sound just like Alison Pearson on Planet Normal. For a laugh, (laughs) as I'm pretty bad at impressions, I deliberately put on my best Alison Pearson voice and said, Hello, I'm Alison Pearson. He looked shocked and said, Crikey, that sounds just like her. I then added, I'm just going to channel my inner Velma. And he replied that I now sounded so much like Alison Pearson, he expected to come home one day to find that I'd become blonde. Help writes Jill. I am turning into Alison Pearson. Are there other Alisons and Liams evolving out there? Should we perhaps have a health warning on the rocket? I'd like to apologise to Jill's husband, as my partner will attest one Alison Pearson is an ample sufficiency. Don't say anything. Almost too much. (laughs) Just resist the temptation. Sorry, I couldn't contain myself. After the very distressing reports of the scandal in the maternity care in Shrewsbury and Telford last week, Liam, Dr Kevin writes to us, One significant force that seems not to have been addressed is that of the creation of independent midwife-led delivery units from the early to mid-90s. I remember those times as a junior obstetrician very well. The creation of those units was driven by vociferous midwives asserting midwives are independent practitioners in their own right. These units were established to be standalone and completely beyond the oversight of obstetricians, that's doctors, sometimes geographically as well as managerially. Some independently minded midwives resented medical oversight and were very determined that the independent practitioner in their own right was the first principle of these new standalone units. It should also be noted that the absence of medical and operating theatre staff made these units considerably less expensive to operate than the pre-existing model. In some of these units, a position was reached where the mantra became, we are independent midwife practitioners and we don't need doctors around here. 
but a caesarean section is always performed by an obstetrician after seeking the midwife's opinion. Even the seeking of an obstetric opinion might be seen as a failure for an independently-minded midwife in a midwife-led unit. I strongly suspect that the reduced incidence of caesarean section in Shrewsbury and Telford was not what was targeted, but that instead the target was to assert independence for midwives and to keep labouring mothers out of the hands of doctors who were anyway sometimes separated by many miles. As in almost every case within the NHS, says Kevin, the failures are failures of leadership. As an aside, he adds, it should be noted that there is a UK-wide triennial review of maternal death. The reason that it is not annual is that the sample size is too small for useful statistical analysis. How it is possible for one hospital trust to rack up nine maternal deaths, that's nine mums in labour died, and this not be noticed is a scandal all on its own. Neglect, cover-up, negligent homicide, corporate manslaughter. Keep up the good work. The lives you save may include your own. I think that's fascinating, Liam. That is unbelievable. And it's so important, Alison. Remember when you wrote about the Telford staff's maternity scandal, the Ockenden Report, and we said at the end, didn't we, of that discussion, there's so much we could have focused on that week. We could have focused on all kinds of political ups and downs, lots of other news stories that were focusing other people's minds. I'm so glad you wrote that column and we focused on that report, the Ockenden report. It'd be great to speak to the author of that report, of course, at some stage if we can. But we have to keep this flame alive with all the other stuff happening in the world, this new tsunami that we often talk about, if you can have a tsunami in space here on planet normal. <laughs> <laughs> we must keep focused on this because what could be more important than enhancing, promoting the safety of mums and children in the act of birth? There is no more important cause that the human race can promote than that. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, let me lighten the mood again, if I may. And this may sound like a self-congratulatory one. You're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> we do work hard on Planet Normal. We have had our teeth kicked in by various people <laughs> over many months and even years now, this our 95th takeoff. And so it's nice for us to read out from fans of Planet Normal to Planet Normal listeners, the fact that this is an appreciated project and many of you out there do value what we do and you value the camaraderie that you get from hearing each other's emails. This is from Richard. Dear co-pilots, congratulations on your forthcoming century. I love the podcast and it's been genuinely important for my sanity at the worst points of lockdown madness. I don't have any interesting stories of the kind you read out, says Richard, but I just wanted to express my gratitude for Planet Normal. It is an absolute highlight of my week, beyond anything else that's broadcast on TV, radio or the world of podcasting. I've learned an enormous amount from your discussions over the years, and there's no news source I trust so much or value so highly. So here's to the double century. Aww. Richard. That's lovely, Richard. You know where he said learning stuff? He was talking about me, <laughs> not you. you. You know that, don't you? 
I mean, it's obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> Putting poo in the post and telling us about it in a national newspaper. What were you thinking? I just thought poo in the post was a very funny sentence. You just couldn't resist the headline. It was a headline in search of a story, wasn't it? A bit like Freddie Starr ate my hamster. I actually think that in these dire times, people are very grateful for a laugh, co-pilot. That's sometimes my function. In your morning paper. My God. You know what I think readers and listeners really like is that I think, God, my life's really bad or this is going badly. And then they think, oh, but look at Pearson. Hers is completely unravelling. (laughs) If you offer up your disasters or your humiliations, they're absolutely delighted. So here are some more thoughts on absenteeism. Simon says, my kids' school said last month that 10 out of the 13 staff absentees were covid Of course, all on full pay. And Catherine says, having been a nurse for 34 years, I'm proud to say that I worked through the pandemic with that one day off. Good on you, Catherine. Yeah, well done, Catherine. And so many like her did. Yeah. My younger colleagues enrage me sometimes with their lack of resilience and their willingness to take time off as COVID struck their families one by one and repeatedly again and again, thus causing them to isolate many times over. To quote a song, I'm not calling you a liar, but don't lie to me. And this is from Jeremy. you like this, Liam. Sorry, Alison, but you forgot one COVID excuse. Fridays are known as Poets Day, P-O-E-T, push off early tomorrow, Saturday. <laughs> and then there's the old Hindi word, Latway. Let's have a three-day weekend. <laughs> L-H-A-T-D-W-E. I love that. Let's have a three-day weekend. Fantastic stuff. And that is it from Planet Normal for another week as we creep towards the 100 and we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. It's your turn. I think it's got to be Richard. So, Richard, your tactic of writing to us with no funniest story at all, it actually worked. A good bit of reverse psychology there, mate. So send us an email, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, in the subject heading put mug winner. But you're no mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you find you're starting to sound like Alison Pearson or Liam Halligan. I'm Alison Pearson. (laughs) Go on, you do me. Don't think I can do you. God. I was going to suggest seeking medical help, but we know that's no longer available <laughs> on the NHS, don't we? But it does help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Keep those emails coming and here's some news. Our Planet Normal 100th episode event will be held in central London on Wednesday the 11th of May, but the in-person tickets are now entirely sold out. They sold out in a single day. We should have booked a bigger venue. And the good news is, Alison, that next time we will because we're planning another Planet Normal live event later this year, and you can still attend our 100th episode celebration online. Search on Google the terms Telegraph Extra and Planet Normal, and you'll see the website where you can book an e-ticket online, free for subscribers and £10 for non-subscribers, and we'll also put that link into the show notes to this episode. There are still spaces to attend online, so you can soak up the atmosphere, and there will be more Planet Normal events to come again we do apologize to those who wanted to attend in person and haven't been able to get a ticket we knew there was huge interest from your countless emails and we are hoping i think co-pilot to have another event in the south and also to put on our breathing apparatus and to climb up north over the red wall surely not (laughs) 
I had to rope up. I have to go in disguise. In my dream is to have the sort of Partridge family minibus where you and I go around in a little with sort of brightly painted orthogonal to the orthodoxy on the side and we eat chips in a lay-by. Do you think that could ever happen? We'd need separate buses. <laughs> I want my Winnebago. It's got to be bigger than yours. <laughs> Such a diva. We should have booked a bigger venue. We will next time, we promise. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers. Here they are. There's Isabel Bouchard. There's Elliot Lampett. And there's Zoe Hitch, our editor. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 